The Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Trusted Computing Group. Through open standards and specifications, Trusted Computing Group enables secure computing. Through its member-driven workgroups, TCG enables the benefits of trust in computing devices from mobile to embedded systems, as well as networks, storage, infrastructure, and cloud security. More than a billion devices include TCG technologies. You can check them out at trustedcomputinggroup.org. Welcome to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this edition of the podcast... When we're sending our designs across the sea, whether we're sending them to a third party or even to our own facilities, um, how much confidence and how much trust do we have that what we sent to them is actually what we got back? Companies spend billions of dollars on information security tools and technology every year. But what if the money that we're spending fights the last war while new and unseen or unimagined enemies and threats are afoot and even at our gates? Those are the kinds of questions our guest this week gets paid to answer. Matthew Arino is a principal engineer at Intel Corporation in the Intel Product Assurance and Security Group. Organizations, even sophisticated ones, often fail to discern the full spectrum of possible threats and attacks on their security, says Arino, and the consequences of that can be dire. In this conversation, we talk about Matt's work with the Trusted Computing Group where he helps develop technologies that make it easier to protect connected devices against threats like firmware hacks and hardware supply chain compromises by building a hardware-based route of trust that can serve as the foundation for the security of entire products and product ecosystems. To start off, I asked Matt to talk a little bit about his origin myth and how he came to work for Intel, including the formative work he did on offensive and defensive cyber at places like Sandy National Laboratories and Raytheon. My name is Matthew Arino. I am with Intel's Product Assurance and Security Group. I am a principal engineer in that group and working specifically in our security assurance area. Matt, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. So as I do often with guests, and I think this is your first time on the podcast, so tell us just a little bit of your uh, your origin myth, as it were, and um, how you found your way to working within Intel and uh, working as part of the Trusted Computing Group. I started my career actually at Sandia National Labs. I completed an uh, undergrad master's degree at Utah State, go Big Blue. Um, started working for Sandia right out of college. Uh, while I was there, I worked predominantly on what we would call red team assessments. Uh, we were offensive oriented. We were trying to break systems, critical systems that might be used or considered for use um, in high security government situations. We, you know, we want to know how attackers might try to break them or misuse them and things like that and try to prepare them uh, for any uh, adverse conditions that might that might come to play. So uh, spent several years doing that at Sandia, got exposed to, you know, just incredible capabilities. Uh, when you're looking at elements and, and nation states are capable of doing, um, it was just fascinating and very eye-opening. Uh, while I was there, I, I also was able to finish a, a PhD at the University of New Mexico, go Lobos. And shortly after finishing my PhD, I actually took a position with Raytheon Cyber Solutions. 
While I was there, I continued doing offensive-oriented work, but as is often the case, uh, those of us who spend a lot of time doing offensive work will eventually get pulled in by some of our defensive folks saying, hey, can you help us shore up some of these defenses and, and figure out and understand, you know, from the offensive standpoint, how you're breaking these things, well, how can we how can we defend against those attacks? So really kind of transition there. Um, again, building defenses for high security government systems, um, trying to obfuscate and protect against some of these really, really advanced threats that we have out there. But again, spent several years with Raytheon, had a great time there, uh, but eventually found my way over to, to Intel. Uh, I started at Intel last year. Um, throughout the course, actually, of working with Sandia, with Raytheon, and here at Intel, I've, I've always been engaged with the Trusted Computing Group. It's a big question and and probably not a simple one to answer, but if you were to sort of sum up what you learned starting out on the offensive side and, and then making that transition to defensive, especially doing it at a place like Sandia where you are exposed to you know, as you said, the, the really cutting edge uh, and nation state adversaries. Sandy is obviously up there on the list of targets um, for, for those types of groups. What did you distill from that experience and what did you kind of take with you when you were asked to come on over and help out on the defensive side? Well, it was it was certainly an eye opening experience um, working, you know, at, at Sandia as well as Raytheon. I think there's a lot of things that that we take for granted and assumptions that we make about what may or may not be possible. Working for a, a group like that, where where we know that these uh, these highly sophisticated nation state adversaries, we know that they have incredible capabilities, but you never really understand the complexity of what they can throw against you until you know you're trying to defend against it um, and so that was really an exceptional experience to be able to work with them and, and really understand that and I found as I've come to Intel and even to a bit at Raytheon being able to bring that perspective is has been critical for them to help them to understand the breadth and the capability of what of what can be done, the things that we once thought were science fiction, that that this is this could never really take place, that someone couldn't actually do this attack or or do something this sophisticated. Um, well, yeah, I think I think we do have to worry about this. Um, and having that background, having that understanding, having the exposure, and really knowing what the state of the art fully is, I, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that many companies face is not really fully grasping what is the state of the art. Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, there's there's like a, there's a sea of um, kind of low skill um, attacks and threats out there, you know, phishing attacks and, you know, in SQL injection and just, and there's tons of that. And, and my understanding is, you know, often those are tools used by advanced adversaries as well. But then there's this whole other level of you know, the stuff that you haven't even thought of. And I, I, I think back to sort of Stuxnet as as kind of pulling the covers back on that type of activity where people said, wow, this is this is a whole level of sophistication beyond what we've seen in the commercial sector, right? Um, and lo and behold, there was good reason for that because, you know, it wasn't a cyber criminal group doing it. Um, but um, but what are I mean, just to kind of tease our audience here, I mean, what are some of the some of the types of threats and attacks that um, might be low probability, but are out there and real and companies need to be focusing on? Well, it's a good question. I, I think that there's um, there's a lot to consider 
when it comes to those type of threats um, in terms of, you know, what's what's possible, what's likely, um, what the, would they really see out there um, as a tease for for what some of those threats specifically could be. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research into hardware Trojans, the ability for an adversary to be able to inject logic and, and custom code or circuitry into a component and then ship it out as a normal functional unit. Um, there's been actually quite a bit of research on that. And, you know, there's, we're still kind of, is this real? Is this, um, are there some real world examples of that? Um, counterfeiting is certainly a very hot button one. We've seen examples of this. This one is one that, that it isn't. Uh, is this out there? We know it's out there. We've seen it out there um, where parts are, um, usually the less sophisticated parts where they are able to completely reverse engineer the part, figure out how it works. And then they may, someone might make a malicious version of that and then stamp it as a legitimate one and ship it out into industry. And we've seen that where people have, have gotten those parts. Um, but even the ability now to be able to remove the top off of these parts and, and go in and make alterations. Um, we know now as new chips come out, you know, you can even hire people to get these reports. Um, there are companies out there who will, you know, take the top off the lid off, as they would say, off of these components. They'll, you know, take pictures and x-rays and things like that. And people can start reverse engineering this stuff um, at a very, very low cost. And so that ability to go in and modify it to, to, to perform voltage glitching, to perform um, probing, to perform uh, clock and laser glitching and things like that on these products. Um, and then you get into the whole supply chain concerns. You know, this is certainly a hot button topic in, in politics today, <laughs> um, as well as many other places. And that's the supply chain and how much can we really trust it when we're sending our designs across the sea, whether we're sending them to a third party or even to our own facilities across the, the sea. Um, how much confidence and how much trust do we have that what we sent to them is actually what we got back? Um, so those are some of the key questions and key threats that we're trying to, to look at today and understand and, and try to mitigate. Often, I think the um, risk scenarios that organizations sketch out are mostly around uh, malicious access to uh, their network, um, you know, persistent access, you know, data exfiltration, things like that. As, as you look at the various risk scenarios for companies and organizations uh, who, who might be making, you know, uh, connected devices or, or consuming those, it's, is that it? Is it really about access and access to data and, and control over the endpoint? Or are there other threats out there as well, uh, maybe just degrading the performance of something or creating, you know, inconsistent data, even if you're, you know, inconsistent performance? Um, are, are those the types of threat vectors that, that organizations need to think about as well. Absolutely. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, it, it really just spreads the entire gambit um, for these devices. What an attacker's um, end goal is really can vary depending upon what it is that they're trying to attack. As you mentioned, it may be something as simple as, as I just need to degrade the performance of this element so that I can get something by it, so that I can, I just need to disable a motion sensor. I just need to be able to disable a, a, a scanner so it doesn't pick up something, um, peak its processing so it's not, uh, so it misses out on something. Um, all the way from there to exfilling the data, uh, capturing the data and then sending it out a side channel, whether that's 
sensitive data, cryptographic data, whatever it may be, all the way to denial of service. And these type of attacks can really come into play at anywhere in the life cycle of these products. So um, at Intel, we, we have a couple of initiatives that, that we're working on with this. One of them is our compute lifecycle assurance, which is um, looking over the entire lifespan of the product from the point that it's developed to it's being built, it's being deployed, and then eventually being retired. And when you zoom in on those, um, one of our other uh, areas that we're working on is what we're calling our transparent supply chain. So we're kind of zooming into that development phase. And when you look at that, there's so many different places where attackers can can come in. Um, attack, you know, as you mentioned, attacking the design network, attacking third-party plugins and malicious plugins for these tools that we use to develop this technology. Um, what are the what validation is going into those those modules? What's going into those plugins to make sure that that it's not malicious in any way? Um, ensuring the protection of those design networks to make sure that that information isn't being exfilled and and sent out to a third party unintentionally or even maliciously. And then going, you know, again, through the assembly, through the tests, the verification, putting these products together, validating that the design and everything is secure and exactly what you expect it to be all the way through and that it hasn't been compromised with. Uh, all of that is things that companies have to worry about. Now, it is a question of, you know, trying to figure out, well, which one is the biggest threat? <laughs> Where do I get the biggest bang for for my buck in terms of, of trying to mitigate these threats? Because it's a lot. It's a lot to mitigate on these companies. Um, and so being able to make those assessments, being able to figure out where their biggest threats are, um, how much money they can allocate to it, and, and what they can do to fix them, that's that's the key questions we have to ask ourselves. You're listening to a spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by the Trusted Computing Group. So when you're talking about verifying the integrity of these devices, integrated circuit chips or system on chips or any of the you know components that uh, companies like Intel make and, and just a wide range of other suppliers as well, um, like what's involved in that? I think most people, at least on this podcast, are familiar with you know the types of checking and, and uh, you know, um, security assessments you might do on application code, you know, looking for vulnerabilities and buffer overruns and, and you know, kind of uh, that type of uh, code analysis. Is, is it the same thing just on, you know, embedded device code or are there different methods and techniques that you need to use to verify that, uh, for example, you know, there isn't a hardware Trojan or that this integrated circuit chip uh, does exactly what it was designed to do and nothing more. Yeah, I think the problem for the most part, um, philosophically anyway, the problems are, are the same. Um, the approach for how to address them is really where the difference is. Um, for code, it's one thing when you have the source code and you, and you can easily scan through it. You can um, compare with your binary. You can... Um, compile with different compilers, see the different binaries, check the output, and look for, for things that, that might be malicious in there. Um, with a chip, you don't have that same capability. You don't have the, we don't have the same ability to actually go back and x-ray all of the, the different layers and figure out, <laughs> reverse all the circuitry and everything, and make sure that everything is exactly what we expect it to be. Um, and this has been a research problem for decades now. Um, it was actually one of the first uh, utilizations and purposes of PUFFs, uh, physically unclonable functions, 
was utilizing them as a metric for being able to determine if something had changed within these chips. And even outside of the chips, when you look at the boards, uh, an entire motherboard, for instance, as an example, um, that becomes monot- uh, rather laborious and monotonous to be able to, to check those. And that's where things like the, um, the Supermicro article that came out a year or two ago, uh, that's what that really peaked in people was, oh my gosh, now, you know, we've thought about this for years that, that wait, somebody could put a chip into these boards, but we've never seen it. This was the Bloomberg article that famously had a picture of a tiny little, you know, grain of rice sized component. Of course, as it turned out, that wasn't the component they were talking about in the story or the board they were talking about. It was just a, you know, stock art or something. But yeah, scared the bejesus out of people. What is the moral of that story, given that so much of the attention actually ended up being not on what the article was saying, but whether the story that the article relayed was actually factual? Yeah, I, I think that the the primary takeaway from that article um, was really that it was a bit of a wake up call for the entire industry. Um, for the longest time, you know, looking at trying to figure out how to to inspect a motherboard, for instance, if you just take the problem of a motherboard um, and you put all these pieces together, I mean, that whole process is automated. Um, you have pick and place. Uh, machines that, that go in and they solder the components down and, and you put in complex designs and it figures out the right parts and puts everything down. But you typically don't have someone there that's visually looking at the board for these extraneous parts. And this was also where the counterfeit parts came in. Nor would humans be very good at that job anyway, right? No. I mean... and, and, and if you can just imagine for yourself, someone sitting at a desk and visually inspecting thousands of these boards. I think um, of like the guys they have at, at, at the door at Costco as you're going out, right? Who yes. like Who like take your receipt and then look at your cart and try right. and figure out like the diff between your receipt and your cart. It's like, exactly. Um, And and take that list, you know, Costco, you might have a list of 20, 30, 40 items on there. Um, Now it's small Costco run. You might have that many. (laughs) Yeah, very true. Uh, And now you're expanding that to hundreds of items. And it's not like all of these items just have a nice little, Vizio TV label on them. Yeah, <laughs> so right, exactly. Identify. And so that type of thing is, it's really, it's impossible for a human being to be able to, to visually do that. Um, and so you've got to develop the tools to be able to capture that, to use image processing, to look for those type of things. And I think up until, you know, this article came out, there was really no need, there was perceived to be no need for this. Um, it was still a kind of head in the sky, sure, something like this could conceivably happen. Um, but we're putting in, you know, we're putting in place this mitigation and that mitigation. They were good mitigations. They were the right thing to do. Um, but the question was whether they were sufficient or not. And I think that that's what this article really helped to highlight for people. It It's shown a light on the fear that maybe what we're doing up to this point isn't sufficient enough. And I think that probably was true. Um, it, it's unfortunate, uh, but it is something now that we have to look at. It's something that we have to explore and consider. And really a huge issue, issue with that is all of these parts come from so many different places that in order to address this problem, in order to really come up with a comprehensive solution that's going to work for all of industry, it's going to take everyone coming together. Um, 
which is something I loved about TCG. That was that was an organization where we can come from all these different groups. You know, I sit down with folks from ARM and AMD and we collaborate on things and it's great. And we're not um, competitors when we're sitting in these organizations. We're, we're co-workers with a unified goal of trying to fix a problem. Um, and that's really what it's going to take to fix us. And I think that articles like that, that's what they're doing is that they're highlighting our insecurities and our assumptions that we've been making from a hardware standpoint and tell, showing us that we can't make those assumptions anymore. Um, and it's time to step it up. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time, so I'm sure you've noticed this too, but it is often the, um, you know, kind of cutting edge independent researchers and then maybe the media as well, kind of trumpeting what they do, who are the canaries in the coal mine for so many of these things. I mean, I can remember seeing, you know, um, uh, DEF CON and Black Hat sessions on point of sale uh, vulnerabilities, you know, years before we started hearing about major, you know, POS attacks and hacks, right? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the retail industry was not listening very closely to those presentations. Otherwise, they would have said, holy cow, we've got a huge, you know, risk here that we need to address. But you, it is often the the vanguard of researchers and and then the reporters who cover what they do, I think, who who start getting attention to these problems, even if the risk, the perception of risk is, is not that high. It's a great observation, Paul. I, th- I think we really depend upon, um, in many ways, the media to help with this and to bring and call attention to this. Uh, I've always looked at security as... Uh, well, I guess my my view, I call it the M&Ms, the morals versus the monies aspect of security. As security researchers, most of us are in this position because we feel a moral obligation to provide the greatest security, the greatest enhancements, the greatest um, protections that we can to the end customer, to our business, to our products. Um, but at the same time, you've got to be able to balance that with the monetary aspect of it. You've got to be able to understand the return on investment of, of the security that you're providing. Um, you can't spend $10 million to provide a security enhancement to a problem that that nobody's seeing out there, that, that hasn't been exposed, that hasn't been brought to light, that hasn't been exploited by anyone. Yeah, it might be the greatest security technology and capability in the world, but if no one's exploiting the issue that it's trying to protect, then you can't justify the the expense. And I think that's where um, folks like the media, folks like these independent security researchers, academia, this is the real benefit that they provide to us is that they really help us to understand what is the current state of the art? What really is the greatest and most current threats that we need to be looking at and addressing? And working with them before um, these things start to happen really helps us to get those, you know, security patches out early, help us to get the security technologies out and really help us to, to beef up the security so that when these things do become much more mainstream, we already have a solution out there that's going to, that's going to help fix it. So talk to us about some of the projects you're working on within Intel and within Trusted Computing Group. Obviously the, the challenge uh, that Trusted Computing Group has to address has changed a lot from when it was first set up in you know the late 90s. Uh, the computing environments changed. The challenges and, and needs have changed. Um, so what are, what are some of the things you're working on? 
my current efforts right now with Intel is really helping to to put together threat models um, for our products, for our supply chain, um, for the compute lifecycle assurance, taking the experience that I had working with some of the most sophisticated and advanced security organizations in the world and taking that experience and really applying that to our products and helping us to to go back and to assess that, to understand, really understand what the threats are and how we can how we can address them and what we really need to be addressing right now. And with the TCG, with their help and with this compute lifecycle assurance and transparent supply chain that we're doing here at Intel, really what we're trying to do is provide assurances of the platform, assurances of what our end customers are buying to make sure that they understand and they know exactly what they're getting. The analogy that I use a lot with, with security, someone asked me once, you know, how do you create security? And I said, well, Security is like trying to pack a bag for someone when you don't know where they're going, what they're doing, or how long they're going to be there. Um, so if you can imagine being in that position and trying to, so you're trying to think of every possible situation, every possible contingency, every possible use that this person might have, and you're trying to cram all of that into one bag um, and get that to this person. And as a consumer, you know, if, if you were going on this trip, if you, you know, if you're going with your wife on a wonderful honeymoon trip and you couldn't see your bag, you didn't know what was in it, and you wouldn't even have the bag until you got to your destination, I'm willing to bet you'd be a little on edge and a little anxious. That's the way these, these products are for people right now. Um, and this is what we really have to fix. We've got to be able to provide some assurances to folks that, you know, I am getting you your bag and it's going to have everything you need. I promise it's going to have, you know, your bathing suit is going to have a tuxedo. It's going to have your undergarments. It's going to have all this, this stuff that you need on it. And I promise you it's going to get there and it will have um, exactly what I tell you is going to be in there. The key problems there is really two things. One, does it have everything that I, that I need in it? And the second is, well, can I customize it? And the customization would be a great discussion. I'd love to chat with you more about someday. But for right now, we're just trying to fix the, does it have everything I promised you would be there? That's where the, the, the TCG and these efforts that we're doing here at Intel are trying to come in and play. We're trying to provide those guarantees that, yes, this is the part that you wanted. This is the firmware. This is the... Um, the video card and the CPU, and we promise and we can verify to you cryptographically that this is what we set it up with in our assembly place, and this is what it was when it got finally got to you, and you can be sure that you have exactly what you want. You know, the computing environment has changed so much. I mean, it strikes me that when Trusted Computing Group first emerged in the late 90s, you know, it was very much of a, a monoculture of Microsoft Windows and, and Intel processors, and that was problematic in some ways, but in other ways, from a security standpoint, it meant that, you know, if Microsoft did initiatives like the, you know, secure computing initiative and, and trustworthy computing, um, it could really kind of be the tide that lifted all boats, you know, because they, they had 90% of the operating system market or 98% or whatever it was, you know. Um, but these days with the Internet of Things, it is a much more diverse computing environment. Um both on the hardware side and on the software side. I know there have been a lot of stories about, you know, vulnerable webcams and, and security cameras, you know, CCTV devices, where often you have, you know, the same software provider 
putting their 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 firmware into you know cameras for many different you know hardware makers and and those are just really white labeled you know it's coming out of one factory but it's got different bezels on it from Philips and whoever else you know yes <laughs> and it's just like oh my god it's it's like it is truly the sausage factory when you when you get in especially the the consumer IoT I would imagine that makes your job much more difficult from a security perspective. It it does indeed. Um, and, and, and it's and sort I of would... a boil the ocean problem. I mean, how do you impact or, or move the needle on security when it is that diverse a population and also where the pressure on cost and build of materials is so intense? Absolutely. I would, you know, I was just going to mention that um, if that were the only problem by itself, you know, maybe we could we could come up with something pretty quick for that. But once you <laughs> once you add in the complexity of their cost challenges um, of in-house development of, of things like that that they have, the space constraints, the cost constraints um, that these folks are facing, it just makes it that much more difficult um, to create secure platforms for them. Uh, and it is it is something that keeps me up at night, both as a security researcher as well as just a consumer of these products. Um, these are organizations that, in many cases, they're competing at you know cents on the dollar for contracts. Every every cent that they put into creation of their product becomes a challenge for them. And of course, security is never free. Um, that's probably one of the biggest uh, hindrances to widespread adoption of good security is because it's really seen as one of those things that I pay for, but I don't see any benefit you know, immediate benefit, visual benefit, uh, financial benefit from, it's hard to really reconcile that. And so these companies um, look at security as just an added cost in a very cost competitive market. And so trying to work with these vendors to educate them on security, on best practices, um, trying to work with the organizations that are providing these securities um, to them is the key aspect on that. And that's one of the things that, that I actually helped with in the in the TCG. We recently uh, released a document on secure update uh, procedures for IoT-based devices, trying to help them understand, because that's one of the biggest issues right now for IoT devices, is that many of them don't have that update capability once they're out in the field. And vulner, you know, vulnerabilities are discovered, New things come out. You mentioned cameras, um, thermostats, door sensors, washer, dryer, refrigerator, all these things. And yeah, on their by themselves, I may not be worried about my dishwasher video recording me, but we've already seen examples out there where a compromised dishwasher or refrigerator or something like that could be turned into a bot. Uh, to to start doing performing denial of service attacks on your local network or on other networks across the world, and just becomes this this huge place where these where these attackers can gain all these resources to start launching these attacks. It's it's interesting. I mean, I think our conversation there there are two main parties. There are the of course OEMs and the, and the whole and their network of supply chain partners who are building these devices, and then of course there are the companies and individuals and governments who are. Uh, acquiring those and deploying them. Um, when it comes to security, uh, where is the proper point at which to enforce security and enforce control? I mean, it strikes me that you know companies these days 
uh, still have a really hard time just kind of getting on top of patching, you know, getting on top of, you know, kind of trivial types of uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, and so if you're asking him to start thinking about and, and doing something about supply chain, that, that might be a bridge too far. So how do we, um, how do we provide a control point around these very uh, sophisticated and complex supply chain and uh, component hardware-based issues? There's really no other way to say it, but you know, security is foundational. You, once you've lost security, it's really, really difficult to ever get it back. Um, and so you've got to be able to build a strong foundation of security. So even from my perspective, you know, while we're looking at these hardware and supply chain attacks and we're going, oh my gosh, we're, you know, is any of this even possible? Are we actually seeing any of this out there? Um, I think really opening our eyes and just saying, yes, some of these things are possible and we really need to, to be doing better about it because we you know, these hardware designs and this initial development, this is what is in most cases serving as your root of trust for the entire platform. If that is compromised and everything else from that point on is compromised, we've got to be able to provide that foundation and security that everything else can be built upon. Um, and so I do think we have to take these supply chain and hardware vulnerabilities seriously, more seriously even than we have before today. Uh, we've got to be able to acknowledge that things that we don't want to believe can happen. Um, we've got to, to acknowledge that this is something that's, that we're going to have to work together as an entire industry on. And we've got to find a way to be able to at least start by saying this platform is exactly what we anticipate it is, what we expected it will be, and we can validate that every time we boot up on this system. Once we establish that foundation of security on these platforms, I think everything else can eventually fall in line. Now, we clearly we have a lot of work to do, and clearly we have not done sufficient work. As you mentioned a couple of times, you know, uh, cross-site scripting, buffer overflows, all those things that have been around for, for decades now, we still haven't completely fixed those. We've got to be able to do that. But all of that starts with a strong foundation. So I really do think um, coming together, you know, whether it's in an organization like uh, TCG, TCG or one of the many other organizations around the world doing incredible security work, working with them, coming together as an industry and figuring out how to solve these problems at the hardware level really has to take a critical role right now so that we can ensure the success of everything that we do from that point forward. Matt Areno of Intel Corporation, thank you so much for coming on, speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. Matthew Areno is a principal engineer at Intel Corporation in Intel's Product Assurance and Security Group. You've been listening to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger Podcast, sponsored by the Trusted Computing Group. Through open standards and specifications, Trusted Computing Group enables secure computing. Through its member-driven workgroups, TCG enables the benefits of trust in computing devices from mobile to embedded systems, as well as networks, storage, infrastructure, and cloud security. More than a billion devices include TCG technologies. You can check them out at trustedcomputinggroup.org.